0: Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 1. Uh, The spring semester at RTS just started, so we are doing lab sermons again, preaching lab (laughs) sermons. This is a text I was assigned uh, to preach on a week from Tuesday. So I figured y'all would be a more encouraging audience than my (laughs) peers for a test run. So we'll see. Second Samuel one. We'll be reading the entire chapter. This is God's word. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind, beside him and killed him. "'because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. "'And I took the crown that was on his head "'and the armlet that was on his arm, "'and I have brought them here to my Lord. "'Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, "'and so did all the men who were with them. "'And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening "'for Saul and for Jonathan his son, "'and for the people of the Lord, "'and for the house of Israel, "'because they had fallen by the sword.' And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on, uh, on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in our God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your whole world. We thank you for uh, the gospels, the epistles, the poetry, the prophecies, and these narratives of uh, a time long ago when... Your people did many things for your name, and you did many things through them, Lord. We thank you for this as well. We pray um, that as we study, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think we would all agree that the obvious thing for a young man in his 20s who's preaching, exhorting, the week after the Super Bowl. Let's do talk about that first. Uh, so I'm going to do that. Uh, you paid attention to the Super Bowl coming up. The, the first theme, uh, the first storyline, of course, was thank goodness the Patriots aren't in it again. Uh, after that, another important one was the story of Coach Andy Reid. Uh, coach Andy Reid uh, uh, is the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. He has the distinct honor... Unfortunate honor, rather, up to that point of being the winningest head football coach in NFL history without winning the Super Bowl. No one had ever won more games than him up till Sunday without having won the big game. And, of course, that changed. Chiefs had a great comeback in the fourth quarter, beat the 49ers, and uh, Coach Reed was interviewed on ESPN after, and, and of course, the, one of the questions he got was, was it worth it? Was the wait worth it? Was it it worth the wait to go decades in your career and and never win until now? And of course, Coach Reese said, yes, it was worth it. Thankful to win with this team, with my guys. It's worth the wait. Uh, But I think another good question you could ask a man in his position is, what do you do now? What do you do when you've you've, you've spent decades chasing down a dream, chasing down the Super Bowl, and you get it? What comes now? A second Samuel begins right as David must answer a question like that, what happens now? First Samuel ends on a cliffhanger, King Saul has died. The Philistines, a uh, people group that for centuries had been uh, a thorn in the side of God's people, uh, had attacked and fatally wounded Saul. Saul did not want to die a, a more painful death at the hands of the Philistines, and so he fell on his own sword and that's basically how First Samuel ends. As we come to David in the beginning of 2 Samuel, we should be asking, how will David respond? Because the last king of Israel, King Saul, didn't end so well. But he started pretty well. We forget this. After Saul was anointed, he showed initial signs of being a great leader. We see first that he prophesied. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he briefly prophesied with a group of prophets. And we think, okay, he's he's prophesying. That's pretty good. And then he kills the Ammonites. And that's also very good. But then he goes downhill after that. He seeks to go his own way. Uh, he, he disobeys the Lord twice explicitly, and after that, uh, his reign goes downhill. David had started better. Now, David was anointed long ago and had been faithful to the Lord for a long time. But even so, we need to ask the question now that David has achieved power, and we'll see how in a second, how will he respond? So we'll see the answer to that question in three headings. I won't spoil them up front. I will say they spell the acronym ARM, arms, so that's just for free. Uh, the first is A, the ascension. The ascension of David. We see that first. And, and if you know the word ascension, you, you think not of David, but of Jesus. Apostle of Creed says, he, Jesus, ascended into heaven. We think of ascension we think that's what Jesus did and we think of the event where he finishes talking to his disciples and ascends into the clouds and we haven't seen him since we think that's the ascension actually the ascension of Jesus is really when he comes into power he ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the father and now he is ruling on high all things Jesus is king indeed and really in a sense for David this is his ascension The king is dead. Long live the king. Long live King David. Obviously, it's not totally an ascension in this passage. We don't see any ceremony where David is anointed king over Israel. That won't happen until a couple chapters later. But I want you to notice that there are a couple of ways in which we see a little bit of a kind of underhanded ascension. And let me show you what I mean. Look at how the text starts. Right, so David was not in battle when King Saul died. David was off elsewhere finding another battle. But the story picks up in verse 2. Look at verse 2. A man from Saul's camp comes, and what does he do first? Falls to the ground and pays homage. Who receives homage? Homage, homage, I didn't look up how to pronounce it. Kings receive homage, right? David is being treated as king by this messenger. And David wants to know what's up. He's very direct. He says, where did you come from? And the man answers, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David presses him again. How did it go? Tell me. He's seeking information, David is. And we don't know in the text what his angle is necessarily. And the messenger gives his answer. It's very long, it's very detailed, but his answer ends with, Saul and Jonathan are dead. David presses him again. (coughs) How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Again, we, we don't know any details on what he's thinking. And the man tells a story. This messenger says he was on Mount Gilboa. That's where the battle was. Saul was leading on a spear. Philistines are closing in fast. Saul sees this messenger man, calls him over, asks him who the messenger is, and he says he's an Amalekite. Little side bit. Those are the folks Saul was supposed to kill earlier and didn't. It tells the messenger, Saul tells the messenger to kill him because his life is up anyway and the Amalekite says he killed him. And then look at the last line in this story. That's a, this is another way we see the ascension of David. End of verse 10. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Who receives crowns? Kings do. The ascension... Of David. Time is here. David is going to be king. David has finally ascended to the throne. And we have to say. It was a long time coming right. I don't know if you realize this. I don't necessarily. In the book of 1 Samuel. David was anointed. To be king like 15 chapters ago. That's like half the book of 1 Samuel. And it's not like when. The prophet Samuel anointed David. He said David okay hang tight. I'm going to go find Saul. I'm going to escort him to his retirement home, and then I'll bring you back. We'll put you in power right quick. And that's not what happens. No, it takes years before we get to this point. And we don't realize that, even if we read straight through 1 Samuel. We, there are no dates like 1050 B.C., 980 B.C. You know, So we, we have trouble maybe as American readers tracking with the time of David's life in 1 Samuel. But actually, we have reason to think that David had been anointed... 25 years prior, maybe over 25 years. That's a long time to wait. don't know if you have ever had to wait a long time for something you were hoping for, and it might have been a good thing, right? Maybe you wanted a better job. And it wasn't just because you wanted to make more money. Maybe you wanted uh, to do good things with the money. You, You wanted to save up for your kids to go to college, or maybe you wanted just in general to be able to give more generously, and so you, you, you hope for advancement in work and it didn't come. And, and at some point, what do we all think when we don't have our hopes and dreams achieved? We think maybe it's not God's will. Well, for David, it was a, like 100% certain that he would be king because Samuel the prophet anointed him, right? certainty that that was going to happen, but he had to wait 25 years. And the thing is, there is only one way for David to become king. There is no stipulation for legal transfer of power in the Old Testament. You can't impeach King Saul. (laughs) What has to happen for David to be king? Saul has to die. Saul has to die for David to be king. And we can't say anything for sure because we don't know the details of David's family and how many of them were believers and whether they were devout. But if they were and they were praying for them, what might have they prayed? (laughs) Lord, you anointed David and Saul's still king, so something's got to happen, right? (laughs) That's a very common theme in David's psalms as well. He often prays for justice to fall on his enemies probably had Saul in mind a lot of the time. Well, finally, justice is done. Saul has been killed, and David has more or less ascended to the throne because the previous king is no longer here. This is David's ascension, the beginning of it at least. Okay, so that's the first heading, the ascension. Second point, response. What is David's response? I don't think any of us would blame David if he celebrated, you know. (laughs) Scrounge up some good food, let's have a party. We wouldn't blame David if he was relieved. Because we gotta remember what was David doing all these twenty five years since he had been anointed. Most of them he was running away from King Saul, who was trying to kill them, kill him. And we wouldn't blame him if he you know, thought to himself, thank goodness that jerk of a father in law is out of the way. <laughs> I don't think I would blame David if he thought that or said that. But look at what he does. This is really striking. His first response is to tear his clothes and mourn. And so do all of his soldiers, and they weep and fast for several hours at least. Now we need to make a point, they're not just mourning for Saul. They're also mourning, well, verse 2, they're mourning for Jonathan, and they're mourning for the people of the Lord, and they're mourning for the house of Israel. So it's not just about Saul versus David, right? This isn't just a a personal issue they have, and David's relieved that it's Well, he's not relieved. He's mourning about Saul. But it's bigger than that. They're mourning for the nation of Israel, okay? They're mourning for God's people. And that's in itself another good lesson for us to take to heart because one time or another, we all will face conflict with other people. Sometimes really heated ones. I hope no one has ever tried to kill you like David had to deal with, but nonetheless, we all go through conflicts. And the response we often have, our gut response, is to make it all about us. And we take it personally and we believe that we're in the right, and so we want to be shown that we're in the right, and so that's kind of what drives us in conflict. I think that's a normal, human, sinful response. Hopefully, though, in conflict, we are in the right. We don't want to be in conflict because we're the ones in sin and need to be corrected. Hopefully, if we're ever in conflict, it's because we are seeking to be faithful to the Lord and seeking to honor Him. And in those moments, we want to stay the course. But In that case, it's good to remember that it's about God and his honor, God's truth. That's the real reason to persist in conflict. And that was the case for David. David was innocent in respect to the question of Saul trying to kill him. David had not done anything wrong to Saul. David didn't deserve for Saul to kill David. David was in the right as far as that goes. But when David finally emerges as as the survivor, he sees the bigger picture. David doesn't celebrate immediately, but he mourns. Many people made in God's image have died. Saul being one of them. And so David mourns. David responds by mourning for God's people. But then there's another intriguing way in which David responds. Let's pick up the situation with this messenger we don't know this right from the text, but if we had read the previous chapter, 1 Samuel 31, we would see that they, this Amalekite, this messenger, was making his whole story up. Because he didn't kill Saul, Saul killed Saul. What actually happened was Saul was fatally wounded and he asks his armor bearer to kill him so that he wouldn't be tortured by the Philistines, presumably. And the armor bearer refused to do it. And the reason was he feared greatly. Feared greatly. We'll come back to that theme in just a bit. And so Saul killed himself. And somewhere along the way, this messenger that we run into in our chapter must have swiped the crown and the armlet. And we think the reason for that is he's basically making an uh, under-the-table request for some position of power once David becomes king. I bring you the crown, I bring you the armlet, you can get me a good job in wherever you set up in Jerusalem. That's probably what this messenger's thought process boils down to. And so we see that after David mourns, he calls back the messenger. Look at verse 13. He asks the man, where are you from? And that's kind of a strange question. We might think, okay, David has moved on. He's the consummate extrovert, and he's just getting to know this guy and making small talk. And no, that's actually not what happens. The messenger says, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, we hear sojourner, and I think aimless traveler, uh, long-time couch surfer, travels the world trying to find himself, but in the Old Testament, that is not what a sojourner is. An Amalekite, again, these are those pagan people that Saul was supposed to kill, were not Israelites, okay? Now, a sojourner was one who was not originally from Israel. They were not part of the 12 tribes, but they moved in, so to speak. Maybe they, maybe they were devout believers and they uh, feared the Lord and wanted to be part of His people and so they moved in. Or maybe they just found the nation of Israel an attractive place to live in so they, they, moved, or they moved in, more or less. And when we keep that in mind, David's response makes a lot more sense than it might otherwise. Because he has him killed. <laughs> he has this man killed for killing Saul. And of course, the ironic thing was this guy didn't even kill Saul. He made the whole thing up to get in David's inner circle. He thought wrong. David responds by executing him. Look at what David says in verse 16. Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And you might think, well, didn't you need this to happen? Didn't you need Saul to be dead to become king, David? Wouldn't that help you, you know, live, survive? No. That's not David's response. David responds to Saul's death in ways we might find confusing. A man, Saul, who had been seeking to kill him for decades, dies, and David responds by mourning, not just for Saul, for the people of God. And he responds by seeking justice against the man who killed his would-be murderer. That's shocking. That's very striking. We should be asking why. What is David's motivation? That is our third point. Motivation. What is David's motivation in this chapter? Look back at verse 14. We skip this line, uh, but right after the messenger tells him where he's from, an Amalekite sojourning in Israel, i.e. he should have known better than to kill the Lord's anointed, David asks him, How is it you were not afraid? How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? He's asking him basically, Shouldn't you have known better than to do that? Because if you lived in Israel, and you knew anything about how the Israelites did government, you would know Saul was not just another tribal chieftain who had the biggest and baddest army and who was able to accrue power for himself in that way. No, Saul was king because the Lord had anointed him. Shouldn't you have been afraid of that? Now obviously he doesn't mean, shouldn't you have been afraid of Saul because obviously Saul's dead so the Amalekite doesn't need to fear him. What's the subtext? Shouldn't you have been afraid of the Lord? Of Yahweh, Shouldn't you have been afraid of Him? To take the the life of the man the Lord put in power? We need to keep this in mind. Fear of the Lord does not equate to sheer terror. Like if you cross God, He's going to come get you. That's a good thing to keep in mind, but there's a bigger issue than that. In the Old Testament, and really you could say in all of Scriptures... Maybe the core of piety, the core of devotion to God, is called the fear of the Lord. John Murray, maybe the, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century put it this way, said the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. And again, when we talk about the fear of God, we're not talking about like, I'm so scared of God and the fact that he's in control that I, I can't even think about it, I'm so scared of God. That's not the fear of the Lord. When the scriptures talk about fearing the Lord or the fear of God, it's talking about loving respect. Should not this Amalekite have had such loving respect and desired to show such honor to the Lord that he would abstain from seeking, from killing Saul, the Lord's anointed? So what drove this man, this Amalekite, to steal Saul's crown, make up a story, and take it to David? What drove him to do that was not love for God or love for his nation, but it was love for himself. What drove David in this passage more specifically? What brings a man to, when confronted with the death of his greatest enemy, to Tear his clothes to fast to cry and to kill his greatest enemy, supposed murderer. Well friends, it has to be the fear of the Lord. What else could it be? David responded to his greatest triumph, ascension to the throne, by staying the course of love and honor shown to the Lord. It's a good lesson for us to take to heart, I think. I don't know if you've asked the question, what is the hardest thing about being a Christian or rather when is it hardest to be a Christian when is it hardest to stay faithful to stay this course of a life of love and honor to God our gut answer is to say well it's really hard to stay faithful when life gets hard right and and we have many trials and sometimes our faith is shaken and there's a lot to that many folks who are church members have made a profession of faith have uh, it, uh, gone through terrible things and they have walked away. They have blamed God. It's very hard to stay faithful during a time of trial. But he can argue also that many other people fail the test of success, right? You have had some measure of success, with success comes a lot of money. A lot of money comes the ability to do what you want. And then you realize the Bible tells you not to do a lot of those things. And so you have to choose between your desires and between God. And many folks choose their desires. They fail the test of success. It's hard to stay faithful when you have success. I haven't been able to say much really at this point about David's poem his lament in the latter half of the chapter, but I want to point out two things. David composes a lament over Saul and Jonathan, and we can't cover all of it, but again, two quick ways we see David's continued reverence for God play out, I think. It's indeed a lament for Saul and Jonathan, but it's also a lament for Israel, right? And let's look at how the the lament begins. Because it's not really about Saul and Jonathan for a lot of it. What is it? Especially look at verses 19 through 21, you know, the first third. David is calling out against Israel's enemies, the side of the battle, and he is imploring them not to rejoice. Why? Because he is desperately concerned for the honor, ultimately, of God, but also God's people. Because... David is lamenting not just a loss for Saul and Jonathan and their family, but also for Israel. David is grieving over Israel. David is concerned for God's people, specifically for the honor of God's people, and he doesn't want them to become a laughingstock among the other nations. We can't love and honor God and then be indifferent to his church and what the church is going through. I think we as a congregation are very good at loving the local church, our church, we're very good at that. But we also must ask ourselves, are we as motivated, are we as compelled uh, to seek the honor of the whole church, the global church? And I appreciate that we, we, we do make a, a, an emphasis of that at Christ Ridge. I, I appreciate that we have folks here who make a point even the pastoral prayer and prayer requests of keeping us apprised on what the church outside of America is going through. Because I, I wouldn't think about that otherwise, right? My, my temptation is to just think about my immediate circle and the folks that I know and not to let my mind go to, my heart go to other folks in other places who love Christ and are suffering. But if we take a page out of David's book, we realize we too must... Concerned for the honor of the whole church, for the well-being of the whole church, especially in places where uh, the confession of, of the faith is put down, is treated with scorn, and that's here too, but another place is treated with scorn to the point of violence. We must be motivated, we must be driven in what we think and feel by love for the church, love for the people of God. One last thing we see in David's prayer. We've left out an important character. Verse 25 through 26. Really the last part of 25. You heard me read it, and you might know that some people will try to use this verse in particular to make it say something else. And people who want the Bible to back their worldview, back their philosophy of life, they will try to twist this text and say, it's... It's not what the church has taught for a long time about what it meant, right? And there's a couple ways to interpret it. And and what I often heard was that it's about friendship, right? And what men need is friendship with other men. And so what you need to do is cancel your Valentine's Day plans with your wife and go to the men's retreat. Uh, Because brotherly affection is better than... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But people think that for real. And, and, and even if you accept that it's still bewildering now, how could David say such high praise such, such wonderful things of Jonathan and Jonathan's love for David and uh, I want to give a shout out to a, I mentioned him last time Dale Ralph Davis who said that what uh, Jonathan is showing to David is evangelical love evangelical love gospel love what has what Jonathan what had Jonathan done for David at, at this point Well, if we remember 1 Samuel 18, we remember that Jonathan had made a covenant with David. And in that covenant, it's a really interesting exchange. Jonathan takes his robe and armor and sword and belt and he gives them to David. And David actually doesn't return the favor. It's a one-way exchange. And you think, okay, what's Jonathan doing? Jonathan... Years past, prior to our text, had laid down his rights. Jonathan had recognized that David is the anointed one. Jonathan had recognized that he wasn't the man. He wasn't the man who was to be king. David would be the king. And so what did he do? Did he dig in his heels and say, David, if you're going to be king, it's over my dead body, right? Because I've got the right to kingship. No! No! He laid it down. And I don't think you laid down your right to be king just because you, you really like this David guy and he's your best friend. I, there's got to be something more, right? Can we agree with that? It has to be, again, the fear of God. Loving respect for God and God's will. God's right to choose who would be king. Uh, again, I said that that was called evangelical love and and. You know, you could argue that that's a way in which Jonathan's life, Jonathan's decisions parallel the life of the Lord Jesus himself. Philippians 2 talks about this. It it says that uh, Jonathan had uh, equality. Sorry. (laughs) Jesus, (laughs) pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God, had equality with God, right? He's God himself. He he has great glory. Jonathan had that on a, a very, very lesser, very, very a more diminished scale but, but glory. both men had glory right and Christ pre-incarnate son laid that down he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Jonathan bowed the knee to another man King David and Christ took uh, a far greater journey down all the way to earth and he became man and he was content Christ was to lay down his glory for a time to endure mistreatment uh, and suffering, uh, unimaginable suffering on the cross for our sake that we might be eventually those who believe his co-heirs. Jonathan laid down his rights for the sake of the will of God because God had selected another man to be anointed and Christ has laid down his rights to glory for a time so that we might be forgiven. <coughs> And you have to wonder what kept David going all those years in between his anointing and now, 2 Samuel 1. What, what keeps a man going for 25 years where he, he's on the run and he's being pursued by this man who is, against whom he's done nothing wrong? Well, what, keep, what kept David from becoming bitter and angry and for not taking the chance to kill Saul because he had the chance? And you could argue that was self defense. What kept him staying the course? What kept him faithful? Ultimately, I think it was the fear of the Lord. He was motivated by loving respect and honor for God and for God to clear the way for him in his good time. I would add also that there was one person who was an encouragement to David to stay the course. It was probably not his men who were rooting him on saying, Dad, get, get Saul. Now's your time, right? Probably wasn't his wife. If so there was one person who... Uh, love, who, who proved to be an encouragement to David? It had to be Jonathan, right? Who had loved him in, in really an amazing way, and had gladly laid down his own rights for the sake of David. And David, maybe David thought to himself, "If my friend Jonathan can act with that kind of humility and devotion to God, maybe I, surely I can do the same." Maybe he thought those kinds of things. But in any event, one of the ways the Lord Jesus, who is ruling all things from heaven, helps us along uh, in the ups and downs of life is that He sends us friends, right? Who help us in the fight of faith, the fight to stay faithful to the Lord. And, And we read this in our scripture reading, Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And as Jonathan showed us many decades prior for David... And as Christ showed us in his life and death on the cross for our sins to bring us to God, is that there is no greater way to show brotherly affection than to lay down your rights. Lay down your preferences, lay down your time, lay down your resources. Because you love your brother, yes, you love your friend, you love your family, but ultimately because you love the Lord. Because you fear the Lord. Like David did Like Jonathan did, but ultimately because our Lord Jesus himself paved the way for showing us that path of love and honor for the Lord and for the saints. So let's ask him to give us the strength to honor him too. Ultimately, let's pray. Uh, Our Father and our God, we give you praise for this story. We thank you uh, for David. We thank you for much of his life, his faithfulness to honor you, not to do what would be easy, but to do what was good, to stay faithful to you, to stay concerned for your honor and for your people's honor. And we thank you for Jonathan as well, we thank you for the way in which he laid down his rights for David, and we thank you, and we, we, we give you thanks that that shows us how Christ ultimately did that to the most, to the full, for our salvation and salvation for our good. We pray that you would take uh, your word. that We have just read. May you uh, impress it on our hearts that we might uh, live in light of it uh, in a way that is fitting and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.